All right, we're going to begin. The handouts are up in the front. Um, let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we come desiring to live lives that please you, that honor you, that, uh, that you would delight in us. And um, so we ask for guidance. We ask for uh, instruction. Help us to deal with these very strong emotions of fear and anxiety that uh, so many of us struggle with. Um, and may, they, may we work them out through the gospel. And uh, may our lives uh, bring you glory. In Christ's name, amen. I already have Oh, you already have All right, so <clears throat> we're going to talk about fear and anxiety. And um, in the Bible, they are <coughs> mostly interchangeable. Um, there's not really necessarily a strong distinction or technical distinction between them. But I do think we can distinguish between them, and it can be helpful to distinguish between them. So just to go through some definitions. So what is fear? Fear is distress in the face of some kind of danger, right? It's, it's um, this feeling that you have right, when, when you're faced with some kind of uh, terrible danger, terrible threat. The, oppos- the opposing emotion to fear would be courage. Anxiety is an intense desire for something accompanied by fear of the consequences of not receiving it, right? So you really want something, but you're worried, you're fretful that you're not going to get it, right? Something's going to take it away, something's going to um, block it. And then the opposing emotion to that would be peace. So you could think of fear as present-oriented. It's in reaction to something that's happening right now in front of you. And you could think of anxiety as future-oriented, right? You're worried about something happening in the future. And you can think of fear, therefore, as acute, right? And you can think of anxiety as chronic. Again, uh, fear and anxiety in the Bible in general, though, are sort of interchangeable. So um, I just wanted to give you kind of uh, some sense of how they can be distinguished. Now, here's what I want to get to. Fear and anxiety are what are so-called negative emotions, right? Um, And... I say so-called, right, because um, um, we're going to get into, you know, if they are really negative emotions. But, you know, it's things like fear, anxiety, anger, jealousy, sadness, and um, they're unpleasant to experience. Um, they're difficult emotions. They involve suffering on your part. Um, and what I want to talk about is, to begin with, the, to begin the class, is that there's a myth that these negative emotions are bad. They're wrong to have. That they're sinful if you experience them. Um, oftentimes, our parents tell us this, right? And so it's deeply ingrained in us. It's very instinctual, right? So that if um, somebody is angry, um, or if somebody has anxiety, or somebody is sad, um, you want to tell them, stop doing that, right? Um, you shouldn't feel those feelings. Um, a lot of times our parents do this, right? They, they say it's wrong to feel angry um, or it's wrong to feel, feel uh, um, sadness. And we're sort of taught to suppress them, to bury these emotions. And sort of the ideal is uh, that we're often taught is that you, you need to become like the marble man, right? Where he's sort of this cowboy on the range, cool and unruffled, nothing bothers him. He's sort of always in this perpetual zen mode, right? And on the other hand, you have the, po- the so-called positive emotions. 
And the positive emotions are good, right? Joy, gratitude, love, serenity, enthusiasm. Um, they're pleasant to experience. And uh, so we're told often, feel these feelings, but shut down or um, don't experience these feelings, right? And what I want to say is that in the Bible, um, it doesn't think in these categories, right? The Bible doesn't say emotions are in and of themselves good or bad. God created us as emotional beings, right? After all, we're made in God's image. So he is an emotional being, and therefore we're supposed to experience all of these emotions, right? And so uh, the con- so what's important is not the emotion themselves, but the context of the emotion. And we'll talk about that a lot more with fear and desire. But it's the context of the emotions and what we do with them, right? Um, how we act upon them. And so the problem is not that we have negative emotions and not enough positive emotions, but the problem is that our emotions, including both the negative and the positive, are disordered and they're unhealthy. And they're oftentimes excessive and self-serving and disconnected from God. Um, And so that's what we're going to talk about the rest of the time. How do we connect them to God, particularly fear and anxiety? How do we put them in the right context? Um, Because... Um, a lot of times, you know, if, if, if the purpose of the class today is I struggle with fear, I struggle with anxiety, um, how do I get rid of those emotions? This is the wrong class for you. Because <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. Because I don't believe the Bible tells us that. But instead, what I'm going to tell you is how they're supposed to work and how they're supposed to operate um, under God. All right, so any quick questions on that? All right, good. So, first point, I want you to know, fear and anxiety are good, okay? Um, I know we often think of them as negative emotions. Um, Again, the Bible doesn't think of it like that, but fear and anxiety are good emotions. So let me give you some examples from Scripture. So 2 Corinthians 11.28, and apart, this is the Apostle Paul, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So the word anxiety there, just in case you think, oh, maybe it's a translation issue. It's the Greek word um, merimnao. Merimnao is the exact same Greek word that, that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, do not be anxious for anything, right? So Jesus says, do not be anxious for anything. Then Paul says, I feel this daily pressure, this anxiety, merimnao, for all the churches. Second Corinthians 11, 2 to 3. Paul, again, writes, I feel a divine jealousy for you. There's another so-called negative emotion, right? I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure version to Christ, but I am afraid, right? The Greek word there is phobos, right? Which is where we get the word phobia. Phobos, I, I'm afraid, I'm fearful, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Let's keep going. First Thessalonians 3, 5. For this reason, when I, could, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And then he goes on in that exact same passage to talk about his distress, his affliction because of his worrying about this church at Thessalonica. Again, Romans 9, verses 1 through 2. 
I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, another so-called negative emotion. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. By the way, I've only given you a selection of passages. We can go on and on and on. There's about a dozen or so um, where Paul talks about his emotional state. And I want you to see this portrait of the Apostle Paul emerging. He's in constant distress. <laughs> he's in constant emotional turmoil. He's worried. He's anxious. He's afraid. And these are not sort of like confessions of Paul. This is not like, okay, these are weaknesses on my part. I'm just letting you know that I feel them. These are not moral flaws. They're in the New Testament. They're in the Bible as examples set for us. Okay? And so Paul here is showing us what the emotional life of a Christian is supposed to look like. Because what Paul is saying, what Scripture is saying, is that fear and anxiety are good. These are good emotions to have. And they come from caring deeply about something. Right? Why are you afraid? Why are you anxious about something? It's because you care about something. Right? And so you care about something deeply. You, 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 you love something deeply. And so you're afraid for some harm coming to him. You're, you're, you're anxious that something bad will happen. And so Paul's fears and anxieties came from his deep love for the churches. Right? He loves the people of God. He loves these little churches scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. And so he's anxious that Satan will disrupt the peace of the church. He's anxious that the tempter will come and lead them astray, that they will forsake Christ. And so Paul shows us that a lack of anxiety, a lack of fear, like if Paul's the Marlboro man, right? If Paul is sort of, sort of like, you know, unbothered, unruffled, just as serene and peaceful, he's showing us that wouldn't be good. That would be callous. That would be uncaring, right? If somebody tells you, somebody you dearly love, you know, um, I got diagnosed with cancer. And you're like, I'm cool, right? You, the person would say, well, I guess you don't love me, right? Um, so Paul feels intense fear, intense anxiety. But in Paul, what do we see? We see that they're properly balanced. And they don't go bad because they're rooted in his faith and his trust in God, okay? I'm going to develop that more so that we see underneath Paul's anxieties and fears, we see a deep confidence and a deep trust in God. And so they don't go bad. They don't become debilitating. They don't become excessive. So, again, so often people are looking to only feel the positive emotions, right? Yes? Is it more like the commentator of reading about Paul that the scholar thinks that he doesn't think of it as, oh, this is my weakness, and it's good to feel fear? Yeah, or whenever Paul talks about his sins, he'll tell you, these oh, okay. are sins. You know, I confess them. I, I repudiate okay. them, right? But um, Paul often talks about himself as a model. Follow my example. Imitate me as I have imitated Christ. Okay, so it's not just a scholar interpreting him, no. but he himself actually acknowledged these are the, my weakness. Like, he, he, he doesn't make He'll it let you know, yeah, okay. exactly. But never do you ever get a sense that he'll ever take it away or sort of mitigate what he's saying by saying these are weaknesses. He, he tells you how he's feeling to let you know you should also feel, you should follow my example. Feel the way I feel, right? So 
So a lot of times, right, we, 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 where, where am I? <laughs> oh, okay, so, so, so what is Paul showing us, right? So Paul is showing us the rich and complex emotional life of a believer. And that's what I want to really impress upon you today. To be a believer of Jesus Christ is not that you're a Marlboro man. It's not that you're like constantly calm and serene. But to be a believer means you feel intense emotions. You feel the positive emotions intensely. You feel the so-called negative emotions intensely, deeply, okay? You feel strong fears, strong anxieties, again, because you care about something so deeply. You're worried about it. You, 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 you're concerned about it. But the balance of it, the proper proportion of it, is that the, the deep fears, the deep anxieties are in counterbalance to an even deeper peace and courage that comes from God, right? So the point I'm trying to make is not that we want to cast these so-called negative emotions away and only feel these, but rather, um, um, so a lot of times people just want to feel the positive emotions. They only want to feel happy and peaceful, Right? And I want to show you that when you say, I only want these positive emotions, that's actually selfish. right? Because you're basically saying, um, I only want to be comfortable. I only want to have a good time. I only want to be happy. I don't want to ever be in distress. I don't ever want to suffer. Um, and the only way, and what you'll notice is that the reason why negative emotions come from is because you're attached to something. You're, you love something. You're connected to something. So the only way you can get rid of these emotions is you have to yourself. You have to not care. You have to not love. Don't love anything. Just love yourself. And you'll maybe only experience so-called positive emotions. But I want to show you that as you grow in faith, as you grow in Christ, in love, you're going to feel these emotions intensely and deeply, right? So the thesis of my class, and I'm going to focus in on fear and anxiety, is that you're supposed to feel all of these emotions together in, in dynamic balance. Okay? Any quick questions? Um, oh, let me let me go on. <laughs> let me let me go on and then I'll open up the questions. So what then is the problem, right? If it's not wrong to feel fear and anxiety, then what is the problem? The problem is when our emotions go bad. So our emotional life becomes disconnected from God. It turns inward. It be- you become self-absorbed. And then your emotional life becomes um, disordered, unhealthy. I'll, I'll explain that in, more, in greater detail. It becomes excessive and debilitating. And let me and, – and so that's the problem, right? The problem with fear and anxiety is not that you feel them, but that you feel them disproportionately. You feel them in, a, in excess. You feel them too strongly so that it debilitates you. It, it, um, it, um, it, uh, it causes uh, uh, an unhealthy life, an unhealthy perspective. And I want to be very careful, right? Therefore, what I'm not saying is I'm not saying that people who feel a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety are therefore worse sinners than those people who don't feel fear and anxiety so out of proportion or out of balance. Does that make sense? Um, the severity of how much you feel fear and anxiety has a lot to do with things like your temperament, 
your personality, um, the genetics that you were you were given, the brain chemistry involved in your in, in your brain in your head, um, your early childhood development, and so everyone suffers anxiety. But your particular biological makeup and your personal history has a huge factor on whether these things become like runaway emotions, right? So you feel anxiety about some some future event. Everyone feels anxiety. It's a universal common experience. By the way, you're supposed to feel anxiety because you're an emotional being, as Paul shows us, and I'll show you later on, God feels anxiety. But um, you're supposed to feel anxiety, but the problem is that it starts to run away. It becomes too excessive. It comes too far. Um, And that has a lot to do with your personality, your temperament. And so what I'm trying to say is that the disorder here is part of the general fallen condition, but it's not particular to one person, right? And um, if you look at anxiety disorders, by the way, it's the most common uh, mental health illness is anxiety disorders. 18% of Americans, according to psychiatric uh, associations, suffers from anxiety disorders. So one in five right, people suffer from extreme anxiety. I believe that you could suffer anxiety disorder and be a devout believer. You could really love Jesus and grow in faith and grow in maturity and struggle your entire life with anxiety disorders that are debilitating, that paralyze you, that you know make it so that you can't get out of bed, right? Um, so with all that in mind, that's the basic paradigm. Then we're going to dive into the biblical resources dealing with anxiety. Any questions on that paradigm? It might be a challenging paradigm, especially if your parents told you Yes, Christina. So how would you reconcile what you just said with uh, Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, do not be anxious about anything? Yes. So a lot of times, scripture, um, if you, you can take two passages, and they seem in contradiction to one another. And then the resolution is that they're actually in tension or, or dynamic balance with one another. So Jesus is talking about a sinful anxiety. And then Paul is talking about a godly anxiety. There's two kinds. I know that helps. All right. Shall we press on? All right. So, anxious. How do we deal with our anxieties? How do we deal with our fears? There's a lot of biblical resources. Let me outline three for you. First one, think through your fears. So, um, if you've ever... um, read some of the literature or receive some counseling on if you have anxieties, one of the strategies they'll give you is they want you to visualize positive outcomes, right? So why are you anxious? You're anxious because um, you have a job interview coming up and you're not sure you can perform well. You really need this job. What if you don't perform? And so you're um, paralyzed and you're overwhelmed by anxiety. So the visualization is you imagine Right? You utilize your, your thoughts and you say, I imagine myself doing well in the interview. I imagine the interview going really well. Um, they're going to give me the job offer, and then that's supposed to calm you down, right? So, in other words, visualization is where you downplay the risk, you, you, you decrease the danger, right? By imagining this positive scenario, right? Like a job interview, or maybe a lot of people feel anxiety about very like, social settings. So let's say you're about to go on a first date, and you're really, you, you really care that the date goes well, because you like this person, and you want you know, it to be a successful romance. So you feel anxious, you, you're sweating, you, 
you 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 can't uh, you can't carry on your normal duties, and so visualization. Um, a lot of people basically they're saying is be optimistic, right? I don't know. If, by the way, if you know this, but um, optimistic people are happier and more buoyant in general, right? Um, actually, I'm generally an extremely optimistic person, right? So I don't feel fear and anxiety so intensely, in large part, in, in some part, because I'm an optimistic person. Like, I'm intensely optimistic. Um, I could go into a dark alley, get mugged, beaten to an inch of my life, and as I'm lying there bleeding, I'm, I'm going to be thinking, but the rest of my life is going to go really well. <laughs> Right? So, optimistic people are happier, they're more buoyant. Pessimistic people, by the way, are more prone to depression. They're more prone to uh, anxieties and fears. Because, you, know, um, you know, the person is lying in the street beaten up, and they're thinking, yes, it's going to happen every week, or everywhere I go, it's going to keep happening, right? So, a lot of people say, you know, embrace optimism. Visualization. The problem with optimism is that it's an only superficial and short-term fix, right? Because you're facing this job interview, and you, you, you imagine to yourself, it's going to go well, it's going to go well, but it only helps you until you actually face the job interview. And then what if it doesn't go well, right? What do you do then, right? And so, and oftentimes, um, being optimistic or, or, or just being positive actually makes the problem worse because you're ignoring the problem, right? I have bills to pay. Um, what, how am I going to pay these bills? I'm just going to think positive thoughts. Somehow, <laughs> it's going to work out. By the way, that's me. I'm an optimistic person. I just think it's all going to work out. I've had this conversation with Tristan many times. It's just going to work out. I don't know how, right? But then oftentimes, if you're, if you're optimistic, it makes things worse. And oftentimes, optimism, and this is what Christina will tell me, is disconnected from reality. There's no basis <laughs> for your optimism, right? I want to tell you that the Bible's antidote to fear and anxiety is actually 180 degrees different. Not to be optimistic, not to do visualization. Let's read Psalm 27. Um, Luke, can I have you read it for us? Sure. <clears throat> the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be? Evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Alright, so this is David's antidote to fears. He says, Whom shall I fear? He does the exact opposite of visualization. He visualizes the worst case scenario. He is imagining being surrounded by enemy soldiers. Um, this is something we will almost certainly never experience in the modern life. So it's really hard for us to, uh, to understand the emotions going through your head. Imagine you're encamped. You have your small group of soldiers, and then surrounding you is this vast army. And their goal is to kill you, right? Imagine the fears, imagine the anxiety. So Paul, I mean, so David is imagining that. And so I think what the Bible is trying to tell you is that your problems are often real, right? Someone you love is in danger. 
Someone you love has been arrested um, for drug use. What's going to happen to them? That's a real danger, right? Optimism and visualization is not necessarily going to help you. You have bills to pay. These are real problems. You're going through a health crisis. You may get a, a very um, painful diagnosis. But instead, what does David do? He doesn't downplay. He doesn't minimize the risk. What he does is, well, so first of all, what the Bible is basically saying is, here are your fears. And what they're saying is they're often real. I know that in anxiety disorders, sometimes um, you, you have imaginary fears or excessive fears or um, even a nameless dread. You don't even know what it is you're afraid of. Um, but I, 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 So those are you know, more extreme cases. But I'm just talking about the general principle. Your fears are often real. Okay? Um, you're afraid, you're anxious, because something is truly threatening you. But what does David do in the, in the psalm? He places it in a greater context. He puts his fears in a larger context. And the greater context, the greater truth, is God. Right? And that gives him enormous peace. So he puts it under God. Right? And so he finds enormous peace when he does that. Right? It's not that you shrink the fears, but that you put the fears under under God. And so what is peace? Peace is a deep confidence and trust in God's wise control over your life. So when you experience hardships, when you experience adversity, you know that it's in God's hands. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is going to therefore automatically give you an outcome that you want. It very well may mean that some terrible thing that you're worried is going to happen will indeed happen, right? You have a health crisis, Maybe the worst diagnosis will actually occur. You're you're about to go into a job interview. It may very well be that you will totally bomb the interview and not get the job, right? But what happens is you say, but it's under God. I trust him. Um, He has designed all of this. He's sovereign over my problem, right? Um, He's in control. And so we're often anxious our anxieties become excessive and our fears become excessive because we're trying to be in the driver's seat. We're trying to exert control of our lives, which is illegitimate. And not only is it illegitimate and wrong and an offense against God, but it's just not real. It's not realistic because you're just a finite creature. So let me give you a kind of um, imagery illustration. It's kind of, um, I don't know, it's a little bit of a poor one, but see if it helps you. Imagine that you're standing before God. And God says, um, I have a mission for you. This is very important. I want you to do exactly what I say. And you say, okay, I'll do it. And so he, he says, I want you to get on this little boat. And I want you to go down this great river. And I want you to meet me at the end of the river, right? And so you get onto this little boat. And it's this great winding river with twists and turns. And you can't ever see too far ahead of you. You can't see around the next corner. And then suddenly, as you're going down this river, you reach these rapids, these outcropping rocks. And so you feel fear. That's natural. You feel anxious. That's natural. How am I going to navigate through these rapids? And then, in that moment, as you're looking at the rapids, you realize, wait a minute. God is the one who put me on the river. He's the one who told me I'm going to meet you at the end. So God intended me to go through the rapids. 
He intended me to go through and navigate through the rocks. And when you realize that, you realize that the, the, the rapids and the rocks and the threats and dangers were there all along, part of God's plan for you. You realize that life is like an adventure, right? And invent, in, in, in any adventure, great adventure story, there's danger, there's risk, right? But it, it's part of the story. It's part of God's wonderful plan for you. And so every moment is supposed to happen. Every disaster, so-called disaster, that you think is going to destroy your life was supposed to be part of your story all along, that God wanted for you because he loves you. Some of you are saying, that's nice in theory. (laughs) How do we get there? How do we find peace? Well, let's look at Psalm 27. We seek the face of God. So if you look in verse 4, David says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. What is he talking about? The house of the Lord is the temple. It's a very strange expression. Uh, David says, I want to dwell there. Now, he can't literally dwell there for several reasons. Number one, only priests are allowed inside of the temple. Okay, David is not a priest, so he would have been forbidden from entering the temple. And you can't live in the temple, right? You can only go in there temporarily for to do ministry. So what is David talking about? The temple is where the presence of God dwells. So he's seeking God's face. He's seeking the presence of God. He wants God be close to him, or he wants to be close to God, right? There's a really interesting research that I read about once. They did an experiment where if you're going to go through a painful medical procedure, um, and they had two, two, um, two groups. One group, you go through a painful medical procedure by yourself, on your own. And then the second group, um, you have a loved one, somebody you love, and you trust. And they sit there with you and hold your hand. And then they uh, measure the pain not just subjectively, you know, how much pain you feel, but they, they measure the brain waves, right, of the pain receptors. The person who had, the person that they love holding their hand, their pain, their pain experience went way down, right? I think it's really fascinating. Um, when somebody that you love is there with you, you feel enormous comfort. And so the objective truth that I'm trying to say is God is sovereign. God is in control. But the subjective experience is that God is with you. So think of the river, right? You know you're a little boat, and you're going on this great river, and you know that God is the author of the river. He has put you on the river. He's put you on this mission. That's one thing that might help you. But what if God got inside the boat with you and sat in the boat and went down the river with you? It would give you tremendous peace, tremendous comfort, right? So how do you get there? How do you seek the face of God basic. Read scripture. You know what scripture is? Scripture is the very voice of God. Um, Do acts of mercy and mission. There's this incredible statement where Jesus says, what you do to the least of these, you do unto me. Do you want to get close to Jesus? Get close to the poor. Um, Through prayer. What is prayer? Principally, prayer is, is fellowship with God. It's intimacy with God. The second thing David says is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So I think this is really interesting the way David talks about the beauty of God. Because what is beauty? Beauty, if you've ever experienced something truly beautiful, it takes you out of yourself. You forget yourself. Beauty decenters you. Um, My favorite illustration of this is when I was a child, in junior high, the very first movie I ever saw in the movie theater, so it made a huge impression on me, was Joe vs. the Volcano with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. It's sort of like a B-level movie, but... 
I'll never forget it. There's a scene where Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are shipwrecked. Their boat has sunk. They're on this little raft. They have no provisions. They've run out of water and food. It's been days. They're going to die. And then suddenly, Tom Hanks is like, like on the verge of death, right? He's dehydrated. Suddenly, it's nighttime, and this moon starts to rise. And um, I'll never forget it. This moon rises, and it's so beautiful. And then Tom Hanks gets up, and he raises his arms, and he says, I, I forgot how beautiful the world is, right? And he forgets his troubles. So when you gaze on the beauty and the majesty of God, it puts your fears in context. It's underneath the sovereignty and the plan, the greatness of God, right? So that's the first, um, that's the first uh, way that we deal with anxiety. Let me write it down. Um, put your fears in the context of God's sovereignty. All right. Second, second, or any questions for that first biblical resource? So it's not diminishing your fears. It's not um, downplaying it, imagining a positive outcome. It's saying even in the worst scenario, it's under God. God is in control. Any, any, any um, questions on that? All right. Second resource: relocate your deepest concerns. So let's read Luke ten. David, ye, can I have you read Luke for us? Yes. So Martha here is anxious, right? The Greek word there, merim now. Um, it's important to notice that Martha is anxious about good things. <laughs> She's not anxious about committing some crime. She's anxious about hospitality. I love hospitality. Do you want to be hospitable to me? I'm there, right? She's hospitable about, I mean, she is anxious about preparing this beautiful meal. Imagine the Lord Jesus comes to your home. Do you not want to, like, roll out the red carpet and treat him to this incredible meal, right? He's hungry. So our anxieties come from caring about good things. But so often we've made these good things the ultimate thing. And we've displaced Jesus from the center. But the contrast is Mary. Mary has this singular focus on Jesus. She puts Jesus at the center. And what that does is it recenters all of our um, all of our other anxieties so that the secondary things become secondary, right? So what happens, this, 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 the second resource is here are your fears, right? Um, and there, you're, you have this intense desire for, some, for something, right? Um, let me, wait, let me keep going and then I'll, I'll get back to this illustration, right? Um, but you, you desire this thing, but what happens is that you've made it an ultimate thing, right? The highest thing, and so then your fears just become excessive and extreme. But then what, what Jesus is 
calling us, what Scripture is calling us to do is to make Jesus, to make the things of God our ultimate thing, and everything will be reordered and reprioritized. And then your emotions will become healthy. So let me give you an illustration. Imagine that you're in a terrible car crash. Your car is just smashed, total. You're driving with your family, and miraculously, every single person in your family, including yourself, gets out of the car alive, unharmed, in no way hurt. The car bursts into flames and explodes, right? And then you say, oh no, my car, my precious car. Oh, I love the steering wheel, my hubcaps. I had this custom-designed car seat. It's just weeping inconsolably. People will say, what is wrong with you? Right? Because what should you be feeling? You should be kissing your family. You should be full of gratitude. Your family is safe. Because your family is more important than your car, right? So our emotions need to be rightly ordered. And so what's happened is that our fears and anxieties come from our disordered priorities, Right? We care about these created things um, as ultimate. Uh, and so our fears and anxieties, right, um, uh, are often like smoke. And if you go down to the smoke, you'll see the fire. And what is the fire? Idolatry. Right? Let's read uh, Matthew 6. Can I have Christian? Can I have you read Matthew 6 for us? Yeah, so anxiety is seeking from created things what only God can give you. And that's why we fall apart when they're threatened. That's why emotions are um, out of proportion and so extreme. Financial anxiety, what is that? It's when um, you feel anxious because you're finding your ultimate security in money. What is when you feel anxiety about loved ones? It's because you've placed your meaning and happiness in them. If they're harmed, how can I live? Um, social anxiety comes from making the opinions of others more important and ultimate than God. And all of these things are created things. They're good things that God has given you, but they're secondary to God, and they're brittle, and they're finite. But if you have God, his love and his approval can never be taken away from you. And so that's what you're doing, right? You're, you're, you're relocating your ultimate your ultimate concern to God. And everything else becomes secondary. Um, Everything else in this life is temporary. It's fading away. But God is eternal. So the the imagery I I would want to give you is, imagine there's this enormous earthquake around you. And everything is collapsing. Buildings are collapsing. People are falling down into this opening pit. But you happen to be standing on this one rock, this solid foundation that cannot be shaken. And so that's basically what's happening in this world. This whole world is coming apart because it's in rebellion against God, because it's alienated from God. Everything is falling apart, but if you stand on God, that can never be taken away from you. And so you'll have peace, and you'll have um, you'll have composure. Um, so that's the second, the second thing is Downgrade your desires. 
make Christ. Haha, slipped into Greek. Um, make Christ your highest desire. Okay. Third, uh, any questions about that? Okay, third point. Um, the antidote to our fears and anxieties is to have courage. And where does courage come from? Courage comes from love. So we have to, we often have this myth that courage is the absence of fear, right? We think of somebody who's really courageous as somebody who's never afraid. And we think of somebody who is always afraid as a coward, right? But that's not true. Um, because if you have no fear, that makes you a reckless fool. Right? <clears throat> that makes you just a, a daredevil um, that's not in touch with reality. Rather, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the judgment that something else is more important than what you're afraid is going to happen. Courage, therefore, is the presence of love. If you love somebody, you'll run into danger. Imagine, um, imagine that your house, your home is on fire. And somebody, the, the person you love the most is inside that burning building. Your spouse, your husband or your wife, or your child is in that burning building. What's going to happen? You don't even hesitate. You run into the building to save, to rescue your loved one. You don't think about the harm that might come to you because love gives you courage, right? Love overcomes fear. That's the key, okay? So the key isn't to shut down your feelings. The key is to activate and in dynamic balance love, right? And this is how Jesus overcame his fear. So here's something that's really something that uh, uh, we don't often think about, but Jesus was afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane. So can I have uh, Winnie read Matthew 26 for us? Matthew 26, uh, verse 26. Then Jesus went into that place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, uh, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Yeah. This is a really amazing, profound passage because it shows us in the garden, Jesus experiences deep distress and agony. In verse 37, it says he was sorrowful and troubled. The word troubled there um, means this massive turmoil, right? This, this feeling of just sinking under the storm. And so Jesus experiences this crushing, overwhelming horror. So much so that he thinks he's going to die to the point of death. In fact, in the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus was in such intense emotional distress that his sweat was like drops of blood, right? Why is Jesus so afraid? Why is Jesus coming apart? The answer is because in verse um, in verse 39, he says, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup. What is the cup? 
This is the cup of God's wrath. Ezekiel 23:33 talks about the cup of ruin and desolation. Isaiah 51:22 talks about the cup of staggering and wrath. And so this is God's holy wrath. And so Jesus is looking into it, right? He's experience, he's beginning to experience some of it. This unfathomable agony, this bottomless suffering that we will never understand, right? Even those of us, um, even for those people who are cast forever away from God's presence into torment and hell, will never experience what Jesus experienced because Jesus was, was intimate with the Father from all eternity, and yet the Father is beginning to turn his face away Jesus is experiencing intense fear. And then the important detail in the story is that Jesus was alone. His disciples were asleep, right? They couldn't stay up with him. And so why didn't Jesus run? He sees the cup, the cup of God's wrath. He doesn't have to go to the cross. The sold, He knows the Roman soldiers are coming. Why doesn't he just run? And the answer is Hebrews 12 too. Let me read it for you. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what is this joy that Jesus was thinking about? You know, some commentators say the joy is um, the glory of God, the, um, the uh, exalted praise of God that will come uh, to God because of what Jesus will do on the cross. Some people say the joy is rescuing God's people to save them. I think the answer is both. And so Jesus is in the garden. He's afraid. He's more afraid than any of us will ever experience fear. Because the threat that he experienced, the danger he experienced, is greater than any threat we have ever experienced. And what makes him run into the danger, to face the danger, right? Remember, courage is not the absence of fear. It's, some, it's, 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 it's the judgment that something else is more important. And I think it's really remarkable because what this is saying is that Christianity is the only religion that says God showed courage. It's the only religion. Because Christianity is the only religion that says God became a um, finite human being and crushable. And so what happens is Jesus saw us, his people, he saw us in the burning world. And without hesitation, without regard to his life, he ran into He saves us into the he, he saves us from the burning house of judgment and death, and he runs into the flames of God's wrath. And if you see him loving you like that, think about that. What he did for you on the cross, then the only natural response is that you love him back, right? That you trust him with your life. And then that will give you courage. Because you love Jesus. Because whatever Trial, whatever difficulty, whatever stressful experience you're facing, um, God wants you to face it for His honor, for His glory. He wants you to live a life that pleases Him. And so you can face it with courage because you love Jesus, right? So that's the, that's the third point. Um, we need to see Christ. Facing danger for you, and then in return, you can face danger for him.
All right. That's my class. Um, there's some, there's some, I just got to notice uh, about the worship service. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was telling myself, oh, I'm not going to preside. I could dress super casual. I'm presiding. <laughs> um, any questions? Can I borrow a uh, dress show from anybody? No. Any questions? some magical steps to wish away your anxiety, right? Um, what I'm saying is, first of all, um, the fact that you're anxious shouldn't cause you shame, right? Oftentimes, you're anxious for a good reason. Something you love, something you care about deeply is under threat. But what I'm, what I'm uh, trying to help give you perspective on is that you place your anxieties under this bigger story, right? Um, underneath the sovereignty of God, um, you have to realize how much of it is idolatry, how much of it is this intense desire for something that uh, I made my ultimate thing. Maybe that's why I'm so anxious. If I desired God above all, Christ above all, His kingdom, then everything would be okay. I mean, Paul had this intense desire and anxiety for the health of his churches, but ultimately he desired Christ more, most of all. So he was able to, these things were in balance. And then finally, to see Christ saving you, loving you on the cross, will help you. So I, I call them resources. I don't call them solutions. I don't call them answers. Uh, this life is a struggle. Some of us struggle with anxiety more intensely than others. Right? Some, some of us have a different biological set point that makes us more prone to anxiety disorders. And, I, and like I said, I think it's entirely possible and true that you could suffer from debilitating anxiety disorder. And it's what you do with your anxieties. Can you, can you pray them? Can you take them to God? Um, and I think for people with anxiety disorders, because a lot of it is, you know, what happened in your early childhood, or, you know, are you just biologically just an anxious person? You're never going to get out from under it. Um, but it's a struggle that honors God. And then one day, that Christina asked you earlier how the any Mount Sermon do not be anxious yeah you were saying that sometimes the Bible has to like it's obviously contradictory can you explain that again I don't think I get yeah so Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount do not be anxious right um, about anything and it clearly on the Garden of Gethsemane he's afraid right he's full of anxiety um, Paul shows us he's anxious all the time, anxious with the churches. So how do we understand that? And what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is a sinful anxiety, right? Um, anxiety that has turned inward, um, that has become disordered, unhealthy, sinful anxiety. But then there is a there is a good and godly anxiety that Jesus demonstrated because he was, with, he was without sin. That Paul demonstrated, right? Paul is a sinful human being but he's 
modeling for us emotion, Christian emotional health. So it's kind of having the negative but not the positive. It's only having sin, it's being sinful. The anxiety sinful, is being right. sinful so because you, you just have that but not have Yeah, there's those. nothing wrong with negative emotions. Let me make this super clear. And there's nothing bad necessarily, or there's nothing necessarily good about the positive emotions. It's what you, it's, it's the context of them and what you do with them, right? So are they towards God? Are they for his honor? Um, or is it simple? Right? This too. Where does addiction come from? Addiction comes from prioritizing your joy and happiness and pleasure and comfort above all else. Right? Um, so it's not counterbalanced. So this is sort of, um, uh, 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 these emotions come from caring about things. Right? Why do you feel sadness? Why do you feel anger? Why do you feel fear? Because you love. Your only way not to have these emotions is you have to shut down love, which makes you subhuman. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes. Any other questions? All right. We're late now. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, many of us in this room, if not all of us, struggle with anxiety. We have... Uh, episodes of anxiety. Some of us have chronic anxiety and fears. Um, and we know that it's the result of the brokenness of this world, the fallenness of it, that we're alienated from you. But we give them to you. We bring them before you. We ask that you would heal us. We ask that you would um, properly balance our feelings. Um, you would make us love you and desire you above else. We pray for courage. Um, we pray for peace. Um, not selfishly, but for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right.